It's 12 and Up, the Wilderness Edition, number three, with your host, Jonathan Malone, and guest host, One Angry Grouse. Twelve Enough is a podcast of Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your host, Jonathan Malone, is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. That grouse is just one angry grouse. Really angry. This podcast is brought to you by frustration and mosquitoes. Don't try to think too hard about how they're connected. Frustration and mosquitoes. And we're back. Uh, You're now getting the third installment of my wilderness journeys. I'm doing these interspersed with the others. Um, I've been working on editing a great live show that happened in June with American Baptist Churches USA, and that's going to come out soon. But uh, in between hearing about Johnny Cash and hearing the live show, I want to give you this third edition of my wilderness journeys. And this is a trip called Frustrations, where I talk about what's frustrating in the wilderness. It's a little bit on the long side. Um, and I thought about cutting it in half, but I, I think it's, it's not horribly long. I think it'll be okay. You do what I do. Listen to it in segments, in bits and spurts, or go for a long car ride. Just drive around the block for as long as it takes and enjoy. So without further ado, here's trip three frustrations. I'm not sure why my second trip is one of frustrations, but after the preparation, this is often the next thing that comes to mind when sharing and talking about the wilderness. I don't start with the great views or the moments of bliss, but with frustration and hardship. Frustration is a part of the wilderness experience, and it is important to expect to encounter a frustration in one way or another. But to speak about frustration so early in the journey may mark me as a pessimist. I I refute and reject that label. Frustrations are not always disappointments. They're not failures, but they're a real part of the experience and enhance the experience. There are times when the frustrations add to the excitement of the experience and times when they detract. Frustrations in the wilderness, as well as in life, are reality, and one needs to always expect them. The way we engage and wrestle with our frustrations will impact and shape the journey. Day 1. Rain. April is supposed to be the month of rain. There's a whole saying about it, and I was brought up believing that if something rhymes, then it must be true, and was anticipating May and June flowers, not April rain. Yet for some reason, it seems that this year, the April showers got pushed into May, and then into June when I started, and some into July, and I don't know what hopeful and catchy axiom about heavy rain can rhyme June, July, or August and offer some kind of positive twist. Maybe it's just that May showers bring June flowers or June showers bring July flowers. I know that what June showers brings are high rivers and wet socks, but that's not very hopeful. The point is there has been a lot of rain, a lot of very cold and unrelenting rain. The first encounter with rain was on my very first trip and still waters was joining me. 
Stillwater had never gone backpacking in the Adirondacks before, and many other places for that matter. He was fairly new at the whole backpacking and camping concept. It rained through most of the four-mile hike into what was going to be our base camp for the next couple of days. It rained all night while we slept in the lean-to, but the roof held and we were dry. It rained most of the day and we found our way through the muddy trails and up mountains. We were in the Santinoni Range, and then we're up mountains that did not offer much view, partly because of all the trees around us and partly because of the clouds depositing all the rain. It was wet, it was windy, and the rain continued to fall, and we were cold and wet. Luckily, our gear was dry, our sleeping bags were dry, and we had some warm clothes to wear at the end of the day that were dry. We had warm meals to enjoy, yet the rain came at the cost and took a lot out of our ambition. The rain made it difficult to enjoy the mountains and the overall camping experience for those first couple of days. For still waters, still new to this whole experience, being cold did not feel comfortable, and in his first experience in the wilderness, not being comfortable was close to not feeling safe. I wanted him to enjoy the hike to feel safe, but there was nothing I could do to make things better. I could not control the weather. The rain continued to fall, and I was frustrated. The second encounter with the rain was again with still waters in the Dix mountain range. While we were hiking in the wilderness from the car as the sun was beginning to set, the skies opened up, the thunder rumbled, and the lightning flashed, and we were almost instantly drenched. There is a certain intensity to hiking in the dark in the rain trying to move as quickly as possible to find shelter but not too quickly because even with a headlamp it is not easy to make one's way through the bushes and trees a lean to offered dry shelter which was welcome for the night but the rain did not abate the next day was another hike in the rain and when your feet are soaked all the way through and you can feel the squishing in your boots with every step and when you cannot find a place to be dry, going up a mountain and finding motivation to put your, push yourself gets difficult. We made it to the top and the rain got worse and the wind got stronger. At the top of the first mountain, Stillwaters and I hoped to climb four more mountains using an unmarked trail. And it may have been the rain, it may have been the wind, it may have been because we were wet and tired, but we only climbed one mountain. We searched and searched, but we could not find the trail that would take us to the rest of the mountains in part because of the rain and I was frustrated. The third memorable encounter with the rain was while I was hiking alone, climbing a mountain and not being able to see anything because the rain refused to stop. It wasn't so much the rain that hampered my sights, but the clouds that were bringing the rain hung low around the mountain, boxing in the summit and obscuring all the views that people look forward to when climbing a mountain. The good news was that the rain did not continue but became a slight drizzle, This was as much respite I was giving. The humidity was high, the summit was anticlimactic, and I was frustrated. The fourth encounter was on the Northville Placid Trail. I was by myself, just starting the long 135-mile trek from Northville, New York, to Lake Placid, New York, just getting my pack adjusted to to my shoulders, and the torrents of water fell upon me for two or three hours without easing or letting up. It was not long until I had to cross a river and wonder if it was worth taking off my boots since I felt like rivers of water were already flowing through my shoes. When I was in the middle of the river with my boots hanging around my neck, the lightning started to flash across the sky. And I wondered if somehow the lightning in that moment became sentient and decided to wait until just the moment when I was in the middle of the river far from either shore. 
Because of the rain on my glasses, I had a difficult time seeing the trail on the other side and was not positive that I was crossing in the right direction. Despite my uncertainty, I did not want to linger knee-deep in a river waiting for the next bolt of lightning to strike the water. The next day, my second day on the trail, it rained again for a number of hours at that same high level of intensity, and I was getting tired of having to wipe the rain off my glasses. I was wondering if I was going to have to let go of the hope that I would have dry socks for the rest of the seven-day trip. I was frustrated. The fifth memorable encounter of rain, that's right, I'm up to encounter number five out of 11 trips, was when Stillwaters and I were trying to find a trail that would lead to the summit of Allen Mountain, and after a couple of hours realized that we were lost. We were lost and it was raining, bringing insult to injury. We had to bushwhack through the woods to find the trail again, more on that experience of being lost later, and we were hungry and cold and wet and more than just a little scared. The rain was not pounding, but it was not letting up. The rain was keeping us from finding any hope of getting dry. We were lost in the woods and the rain seemed to be an insult that added to injury, and I was frustrated. Another time, the rain started, got heavier and heavier very quickly, and then turned into hail pounding upon my head and leaving me drenched, slightly, slightly bruised and shivering. Yet another time, I, devi- I developed a more than slight case of hypothermia at the top of the mountain because of the wind and the rain and the cold. That experience of the summit sucked, and I was frustrated. I tried to find a peaceful, zen-like place of accepting the rain. I tried to find a mindset where I would realize that the rain was not personal. Rain does not have agency or personality, and I do not believe that God was making it rain to teach me some weird kind of lesson. I worked to reach that place where I accepted that the rain was not out to get me, but it was just happening and would be happening regardless if I was in the wilderness or not. I would say out loud to the trees, to the animals, or to anyone that would listen, rain is going to do what rain is going to do, and I'm still going to hike. It was as if these were magic words that were supposed to change my heart, soften me, and make me no longer negatively affected by the rain. And sometimes that mantra worked, and I found that I could hike in the rain with a smile on my face and a spring in my step, but often I found myself wishing it wasn't raining, resenting the rain, and getting frustrated. Everyone has an image of what it will be like when you go into the wilderness. We have expectations and hopes, and usually those include blue skies, warm day, but not too hot, and good hiking. Not many envision themselves hiking in the rain, dripping wet, cold, and miserable. Yet rain is part of nature. It is the rain that, in part, gives life so much of the wilderness. It is essential. I suppose that I would rather the essential part of the wilderness happen when I was not there. I was going to be in the wilderness for the majority of the summer for three months, Why would I not expect to encounter rain from time to time? The odds were against me, and yet I still found myself getting frustrated and disappointed. To struggle with disappointment is a part of life. To name that I get frustrated is an honesty towards the reality of life. I know that I'm going to encounter, I'm not going to encounter ideal conditions. I would rather it not rain, but always go prepared for the rain to fall. This does not mean that I avoid the rain. It does mean that I look to find a way to stay dry. My preparation to encounter rain means that I plan and intend on hiking in and through the rain. It means I expect to get wet even if I would rather not. To name something as a frustration does not mean it is wrong or bad. It's being honest about the way something has an impact on me. 
I need to be honest. Rain has a negative impact on my wilderness experiences. My naming the rain as a frustration is speaking to a reality of the rain and the reality of the experience of being wet for days on end. I wonder if I can get to a place where the frustration of the rain does not shape my overall experience of the journey. I wonder if I can be frustrated and still feel rewarded after the journey. From John Wesley, prayed on top of Gray Mountain. Fix our steps, O Lord, that we may not stagger at the uneven motions of the world, but steadily go on to our glorious home. Neither censoring our journey by the weather we meet with, nor turning out of the way by anything that befalls us. Day 2. River Crossings and Broken Bridges There is something annoying about being inconvenienced, having to take a detour when driving, needing to wait a little longer for the cafe latte because only one espresso machine is working, or losing electricity at the house for a couple of hours are all inconveniences. These are things that get in the way, that make life a little challenging for a moment, but not really. These are not life-altering or challenging things that we experience, but bumps and bothers that are part of every day. Some may recover from these experiences better than others, but we all have to face them. Some may say that life is a series of inconveniences and we have to navigate. These are sad, pessimistic people, but they speak to a truth. Even in the wilderness, when the basic conveniences of modern-day life are seen as luxuries and inconveniences are placed in a different perspective than losing electricity or having to wait for a latte, we still encounter inconveniences. I still find myself bothered when I don't have the basic things that I've grown to expect to to be a part of the wilderness experience. I find myself getting to a place where I feel like I deserve certain amenities, like bridges and passable rivers. When I encounter a body of water without the proper rocks in just the right places or a lack of human-constructed bridge that I can walk across without worrying about falling in, I get a little miffed. I like to have dry boots, and I'm going to have to attempt to jump from rock to rock and risk injury, or I'm going to have to go through the bother of having to remove my boots and wade through the waters. Even if I've been hiking in the rain and I can hear the squeaking and squishing of water logged into the depth of my boots, I try to hold to the idea that with each step they're starting to dry. I like to tell myself that an hour into hiking, my boots are a little drier than they were when I started. So when I come to a river or stream that needs to be crossed, I want to do everything I can to keep my boots out of the water, I want to stay dry, and this is the value that guides my actions and feeds my frustration towards river crossings. A a difficult crossing every once in a while is not so bad. One tricky traverse of a stream or river a day is tolerable, yet multiple challenges in one difficult day quickly becomes a bother. After about a month of heavy rain, I came to one crossing that required me to remove my shoes. It was early in the day, it wasn't that cold, and I did not mind so much. I assumed that this was going to be the only crossing of the day. Later that same day, only a few hours later, I came across another crossing where I needed to remove my shoes. With a smile on my face and all efforts to keep things positive, I took the time to again remove my socks and shoes, put on my sandals, and make my way across the cold waters. About two hours later... I came by another crossing where I would again have to remove my shoes and was now starting to resent the whole act of taking off my shoes and wading through the water with my pack on my back and my boots hanging around my neck. 
The sandals that I put on made the crossing a little easier, but the water is cold and the whole process is tedious. A month of rain had made a notable impact on the waterways and was constantly breaking the pattern and rhythm of my hike. The waters were high, the currents strong, and after the third crossing where I needed to remove my shoes and socks, I was starting to get tired and sloppy. During the next crossing, number four, I think, I lost my balance. I leaned forward, and one boot that was hanging around my neck went right into the water. I watched the water flowing with urgency into the interior of the boot, negating all of the effort and work that I was trying to do by removing the boot in the first place. The point of removing the boots in the first place was to keep them dry, and all that work of the day was now gone as my boot filled with water. Uh, Frustration is too soft of a word at this moment. The words that I invoked at that moment were probably a little too strong for this writing. It was a learning moment. And after that tragic crossing, I learned to strap my boots at the very top of my pack so that the only way they would get wet would be if I completely fell into the water head first. It was a good lesson to learn, but one that I would rather learn by reading a book or magazine article. As I poured the water out of my boot and tried to wring out my socks, I considered all of the crossings that I made that day. Where are the bridges that are supposed to help me avoid such tragedy? Sometimes I think I can pull off a river crossing without removing my boots. I look at the rocks that are sticking up out of the water, judge, gauge, test, and then take the chance and leap. And sometimes I actually make it. But other times I slip. I misjudge the distance or the stability of a rock or think the water is not as deep as it looks. And my foot goes into the water and curses fly from my mouth and I start wondering where the bridge went. Sometimes the mosquitoes are so heavy and relentless that at the time it takes for me to stop and remove my socks and boots and put on my sandals is enough to fully feed a family of five. And while I am all in for family values, not at my expense. Where's that darn bridge? Once, when seeing a difficult crossing and the remains of a beaver dam, I decided to head right for the beaver dam. Beavers are known for their excellent construction and structural integrity. Then I saw a snake right in front of me, right where I wanted to step, sticking its head up in the air, threatening me, telling me I needed to find a different way. I don't think it was a big snake, but any snake of any size is big enough. Instead of carefully finding my way over the dam, I had to remove my shoes and waded up to my hips in the deeper and trickier part of the water. Where is that stupid bridge? I know that there is only so much money to go around, especially at the state level. I know that the employees of the state are working as hard as they can to keep the trails maintained and then that there are volunteer groups going above and beyond to maintain the trails. I met one trail steward who was tending to a couple of miles of the Northville Placid Trail and he was cutting back vegetation with a hand pruner. This is slow and tedious work and there are not enough hands and not enough people to see to everything that needs to be done. I know that part of being in the wilderness means that I'm going to have to encounter crossings that are not going to be easy and that I'm going to have to jump from rock to rock or wade through the water from time to time. Many brag about the rugged nature of the Adirondack trails. I know about this, but at the end of the day of multiple difficult water crossings, something in me cries out that this is not fair, this is not right, and someone should have known that I was coming and put a bridge in just for me. At the end of the day, all reason and rationality falls awake, and I become a self-centered brat, demanding that all my needs be tended to and cared for. And the inconvenience is frustrating. 
There have been some bridges that I encountered that were in such a sad state of affairs that they may have well not been there. Some still had the cross beams on them, but not much else, demanding a kind of balancing circus act to be crossed. Others looked at it as if they had just fallen down moments ago and with rotten boards and rusty nails invited the hiker to take a chance. Each time I came across one of these dilapidated bridges, I would have to stop and think about what it was I was carrying on my back with a level of agility as impacted by a day pack or a full backpack and how I was going to get across. Perhaps I should abandon the bridge altogether and take the chance of trying to get across the gully or stream on my own. Or perhaps I should take off my pack and try to throw it across, which never went well, and then try to scamper across to the other side. Or I could act like I was a monkey or a gymnast and try to balance my way across the remains of the bridge with my pack impairing my balance and ability. The worst broken bridge was over what looked like a fairly deep stream. There were two sapling poles lying across the stream next to the bridge that I felt I could balance myself across. I took one step. It felt strong. I took another step, and I heard the groan and the creaks and the beginning of the snap of the wood of the poles. This was not going to be the way that I was going to go. The bridge was turned on its side, so crossing it demanded that I would have to have at least three points of contact at all times while trying to avoid the rusty nails sticking out. I made it, but barely. Every broken and failing bridge that I encountered was never easy, but sometimes fun, and sometimes frustrating. Why, could, why couldn't they just fix the darn bridge? Perhaps what is so frustrating about bridges and rivers is that on their own, they're really no big deal. If I'm taking a stroll and come across a broken bridge or a river that seems difficult to pass, then I just find a different way and not worry about it. With a different frame of mind, I know I could get to a place where I could say that it is a gift to be able to put my feet in the water and enjoy the cool mountain stream. I could say that a broken bridge is better than no bridge at all and figure out the best way to use what I had. These were not things that were getting in my way, but a part of the trail. The river crossings, the broken bridges, were just a part of the trail, and I should expect and accept these obstacles. Yet I often let myself get frustrated, because these parts of the trail interrupt the rhythm and the flow of hiking that I constantly strive to achieve. I often let the inconveniences become challenges and obstacles, and I found that I took it personally. It was not the rivers or the broken bridges that were so frustrating, but my attitude towards them. If life was without challenges, unexpected difficulties, and moments that would require one to stop and to take time to work through, would we be happy? If I did not have to take time to stop and break the rhythm and flow of life, would I be happy? I would imagine that I may be satisfied for a moment or two, but overall I would not be enjoying life. It is odd to think that in order to enjoy life, I need to encounter difficult river crossings and broken bridges to navigate. There were times when I came across a bridge that I admired. More than once, I found a well-constructed, solid bridge that made a crossing river easy. And I did stop to wonder at the work and the planning that must have gone into creating such a structure. I don't know if it was because I had so many other difficult crossings that I felt moved to stop and wonder, but I imagine that it had an impact. I'm not going to say that life gives you difficult crossings and you just need to find the right rocks to jump across. This is a cheap metaphor that I will leave to the armchair Hallmark Transcendentalists. I will say that we will encounter unexpected difficulties in life. And you can make any connection to difficult river crossings or broken bridges that you want. 
I have not yet come across a river that cannot be crossed, but it depends on how wet and uncomfortable I want to be. How badly do I need to get across the river, and how badly do I need to stay warm and dry? From Howard Thurman, from the top of Mount Allen, the second time. Our little lives, our big problems, these we place upon your altar. The quietness in your temple of silence again and again rebuffs us. For some there is no discipline to hold them steady in the waiting, and the minds reject the noiseless invasion of your spirit. For some there is no will to offer what is sensual in the thoughts. The confusion is so manifest, there is no starting place to take hold. For some, the evils of the world tear down all concentrations and scatter the focus of the high resolves. We do not know how to do what we know to do. We do not know how to be what we know to be. Our little lives, our big problems, these we place upon your altar. Pour out upon us whatever our spirits need, the shock of life, the release that we may find strength for these days courage and hope for tomorrow. In confidence, we rest in your sustaining grace, which makes possible triumph and defeat, gain and loss, and love and hate. We rejoice this day to say, our little lives, our big problems, these we place upon your altar. Howard Thurman. Day three, insects, bears, chipmunks, snakes, and one grouse. It is always a wonderful thing to encounter the wildlife in its natural habitat. Or at least this is what we are supposed to say. We are supposed to marvel at the tenacity and the freedom of the critters big and small have in their natural environment. We tell ourselves that it is a blessing to see a beaver or an eagle or an otter or almost anything else in the wild where it was meant to be. We even marvel at an invasive species with a healthy dose of naivete and ignorance at how the ecosystem is being destroyed by its presence. It is supposed to be a wonderful opportunity to encounter the animals in the wild. Or at least this is what we say. We say that we are looking forward to seeing nature in its most true form and that we are excited at the opportunity and possibility of encountering majestic beasts in the wild. But the reality is that there are different levels of encounters that we really prefer, and some of these encounters are more acceptable than others. There are kinds of wildlife that we want to see and encounter and watch, and other kinds we would prefer to not see at all. Perhaps the most ubiquitous animal that one encounters in the wildlife, and the animal that is almost impossible to avoid, is the insect. These are not lovable, wonderful woodland creatures that cause people to swoon. Insects are not painted as a part of the joy of being in the wilderness and will not be found in a Bob Ross episode. Insects are a nuisance. They are a pest. And for people of faith, we believe that insects are minions of the devil. When asked if I saw any animals, no one wants to hear about the millions and millions of insects that I encountered, and yet they were an almost daily part of my journey. I am convinced that there are certain insects that conspire to work together to make my time in the wilderness as unenjoyable as possible. I believe that somewhere at the main headquarters of the insects, which I'm sure the sketches for the Legion of Doom were based upon, there is a schedule that ensures that I and other hikers have the worst experience possible. In the morning shifts are the green head flies and the much larger, uglier horse flies. 
The greenhead flies bite the ankles are very quick and almost impossible to hit. They distract you from the slower horse flies, which find a place to land and take a large chunk of flesh out of you. I'm certain that the greenheads and the horse flies are working together. They wait for you to sit down and enjoy breakfast and then start to dive and attack. This is the insect's way of saying good morning. This barrage does not go on all day. By mid-morning, the greenheads and horseflies take a break and the deerfly have their turn. The deerflies circle around your head and ears and every now and again land and take a certain pinch of the pound of flesh that you owe them for being in their home. There's a certain frequency of buzzing that the deerflies have and an amazing ability to stay with you while you are moving, so hiking faster does not offer relief from those flies. I found that having longer hair was an advantage as a deerfly would get caught in my locks and it was not difficult for me to capture them between my fingers and then bring about a quick and deserved death. The black flies came out later in the day, in the evening, hovering around your face, landing on your wrists and knees, finding a place to burrow in and take a bite. Black flies have a wonderful ability to fly just close enough to your eyes and mouth that you worry that they might get caught in a breath or between your eyelids. They tend to take a little time to find their way to your flesh, but when they do, those bites also hurt. Their main strategy is to have sheer numbers around your head so that you just give up and allow them to swarm around you. The mosquitoes are around all the time, morning to night. There have been times when they have swarmed my gear and myself as soon as I stopped and other times that during the day they have, been, they have not been unbearable. However, as soon as the sun begins to set, the mosquitoes arrive in full force, stinging and biting and humming in your ears all night long. And because of the constant buzzing, the next day you'll wake up with a buzzing refusing to leave your ears even though there is not a mosquito around. It is kind of a mini post-traumatic mosquito syndrome. Morning, daytime, evening, different insects arrive and other insects leave, clocking in and out their tasks to make the wilderness experience as frustrating as possible. Greenhead, fl black flies, deer flies, mosquitoes, and others take their turn to get an ounce of flesh each and every day, and the whole schedule of insects' attack, attention and attack repeats. There are repellents that one can use. There are options that can aid one in trying to find moments of respite from the hum, buzz, and bites of these minions of hell. DEET is powerful magic bullet that people tend to clamor for. It's rumored to be a shield that no insect can break through. It is said to be the nuclear option of insect repellent. You can purchase store brand repellent with 10%, 15%, 40%, and all the way up to 100% DEET in the mixture. With it is sold in bright orange red bottles, showing warning, this is toxic. Stay away. Depending on how much protection you desire, DEET works. It keeps the horrible flies and mosquitoes and other such creatures of death away. But you have to be careful to keep it off your tent walls because the chemical will eat away at the tent material. You also have to be careful to keep it away from the hard plastic of the bear canister because it will diminish the integrity of the plastic. And it goes without saying that you want to keep it out of your eyes, your mouth, and any other pores because it's toxic. Sure, it works, but it may eat away at your gear, shelter, and skin, and who knows what else it could do. It may be that the insects avoid DEET because they know what will kill them and want to avoid it at all costs. I choose to not use DEET because I'm not excited about putting something that chemically strong on my body. There are a number of other remedies, dryer sheets, lemon juice, skin so soft, but none work with the regularity or effectiveness of DEET. If you want full protection, then opt for the chemical bath that comes with DEET. 
If you'd rather be a little healthier and okay with the insects getting you 50% of the time, then you can look at other possibilities. I chose to use an organic mix repellent that has lavender and citrus oils and all the goodness of the morning dew that is supposed to work. I guess that rubbing leaves and herbal scents and other such things that you're bo- on your body might work because the in- insects are known for their hatred of organic smells of nature. It is common knowledge that all insects vote Republican and have a deep repulsion towards hippies or anything that celebrates the earth, and that's why the repellent is supposed to work. Disclaimer, not all Republicans hate hippies. And it did work, but it was not lasting. The bugs went away for a brief respite, maybe 30 to 45 minutes, but they always came back, and they were always hungry. Perhaps the only hope is to get away from the bugs. One must create a bug-free zone of sorts. But this is not an easy thing to do when backpacking through the wilderness. I suppose I could drain all the low-lying wetlands, spray spray pesticides over all the place, build a sterile and well-sealed home, and make sure all of my surrounding environment is well manicured and not attracted to any insects. That's called living in the suburbs. And what would be the fun in all that? And while the effort may be misplaced and antithetical to the whole hiking and wilderness experience, the desire to alter one's environment in order to create a space that is free of the pain and frustration of insects and other challenges is human. I want to get away from these horrible creatures that will not leave me alone, but I am not going to run from the wilderness that feeds me in so many other wonderful ways. I'll hike with a tent, and that becomes my temporary sanctuary from the winged demons. In the tent, I can gain a night's sleep without the demonic humming and buzzing and biting. Part of the game is getting into the tent as quickly as possible to minimize the amount of insects that would share my sleeping space and keep me awake through the night. If I am successful in the fast routine of unzipping the door, leaping into the tent, and quickly zipping the door back up, then I have found a place that is free of insects. There's a peace, a quiet that I've found in my tent every time I've used it. And I will say that my best night's sleep were inside of my tent. I'm not sure why I didn't use the tent more often. There were times when the insects would swarm the very moment I stopped moving, but that was expected. The times that angered me was when I would be attacked and bit while I was moving. I believe that there's an unwritten contract in the wilderness that I have with nature and specifically the insects. With the insects, the agreement is that while I am moving, they do not bite. Uh, Aside from the deer fly, they get a pass because they're stupid, annoying, and almost never land a bite. As long as I'm hiking or even just swaying from side to side while trying to have a snack, I should be off limits from the insects. When I would stop, even if it was only for a moment, I would experience a feeding frenzy from the insects, especially the mosquitoes, and I was not resentful. They would surround me and with a vicious focus dive in for a bite as this connecting to my flesh was their sole purpose of their existence, and in many cases I believe it was. There were times when they seemed much more sneaky waiting for me to get relaxed and sending in one and then two and then more and more so that the moment that I felt overwhelmed by the presence of the insects took me by surprise and Other times they just flew in with full force without any hesitation at all. This was all fine. This is part of the agreement that I have with the insects. If I'm not moving, then it's fine to attack. Sometimes the insects would even attack while I was hiking. That was breaching the unspoken agreement that we had. And I would not only hike with anger and resentment, but with a sense of betrayal. This was not the deal that I had signed. The black flies and mosquitoes and other winged beasts were not supposed to bite if I was moving and they had crossed the line. 
Now I'm angry and frustrated with the creatures. Some may say insects are mindless, but I wonder. The scientist and philosopher E.O. Wilson has offered a philosophy of life and everything influenced by his study of ants. He seems to have found a sense of harmony and good in what he finds when watching the multi-legged creatures crawl around the ground. I look at the insects that have plagued me, flying through the air, diving in to attack, and find in their actions a window to the corrupt and broken nature of humanity. Snakes Snakes lurk. They would be on the ground, under the cover of grass and leaves, just outside your field of vision, and lurk. The snakes would be waiting for the perfect moment, that instant, just before you're upon them, and they would move. More often than not, you would not see the snake but would catch the glimpse, the movement of a tail, the scurrying away. Wait, do snakes scurry? The quick and serpentine moment that you glimpse is a reminder that you are not alone, that there is much more in these woods than you and those horrible flying insects around your head. They are not so much a threat, but a reminder that you need to be aware of your surroundings and that you need to be careful where you sit or step or stand because something lurks within. And if you have a phobia, which thankfully I do not yet, the quiet possibility of running across one of these creatures constantly hovers before you in every place where one might find warmth and sunshine. Chipmunks. I did not have many encounter with chipmunks. Normally I would see them running one way or the next, trying to avoid my presence and hurrying to meet some kind of self-imposed deadline. No doubt chipmunks are very busy and very important because they're always in such a hurry. These moments that I was able to glimpse a, glimpse a chipmunk were ones that I could appreciate, maybe even enjoy. Mentally, I would shift into a poetic place, lifting up the ideal that it is wonderful to see such a cute and precious creature in the wilderness. This is why I, join in, I journey into the wilderness, to see nature in its basic form. There were some places and times where chipmunks crossed the line, though, and I did not celebrate their cuteness. I do not, see, I do not mind seeing chipmunks from a distance. I do not mind seeing them run into a hole in the ground or up a tree, but I do not want to see them up close. Remember, no matter how cute the chipmunk must, must, may seem, it is still a rodent, a rat in disguise, running over my shoes, climbing on my sleeping bag, searching through my gear, and begging to have some of my meal and touching me with those gross paws. No matter how cute the little creature may look, it cannot be trusted. I do not know if the rodent would chew a hole in my gear, if it would try to bite me, or if it would threaten me with a knife or a gun in an attempt to steal my food. From afar, the chipmunk is fine, but up close, in my gear and personal space, I am no longer a happy camper. It was normally at a lean-to where these ambitious chipmunks would cross the line from being nature's cute go-getters to unwelcome begging guests that would never leave. A chipmunk would come right up to my feet and even threaten to touch my feet, which for me is crossing the line. They would wait and hope for a morsel, an oat, or a crumb to fall, and then look to take the rest of my food from my hand. This is not okay with me because they do not belong that close to humans, or at least to this human, and they should not be eating human food. I'm not eating their nuts or berries, well, except for the raspberries and blueberries. Those are really good. I do not like it when a chipmunk is so, fo so forward as to assume that I am going to offer it a handout. Perhaps the most ambitious and most annoying that I encountered was at Blueberry Lean 2 in the Seward Mountain Range. Because of the danger of bears, it is important, whenever possible, to eat in a place separate and or distant from where you are going to sleep. 
I was eating about 50 feet or so from in front of the lean-to, enjoying a well-earned dinner and trying to avoid the insects that were hovering nearby and around my head and doing all that I, they could to make sure that I was not going to have a wonderful, quiet meal. As I was eating, I saw the chipmunk inching and edging forward towards the lean-to. No doubt the creature was looking to see if I was one of those bleeding-heart, tree-hugging, amoral people who would hand out food to every rodent without worrying or without a concern. I wanted to see. It wanted to see if I was the kind of hiker who was looking to make friends with the woodland creatures in hopes that I would emulate the statues of St. Francis who would always seem to have a bird on his shoulder and at his feet. I'm not that kind of hiker. I didn't come into the wilderness to make friends with the wildlife. I threw a twig towards it in effort to scare the chipmunk off, and it did move backwards a bit. Confident that I made my point, I went back to my dinner, and that's when I saw the, lean, the chipmunk in the lean-to climbing over my bed, searching and smelling and looking for anything to chew on or into. I had visions of gaping holes in my pack and holes in my clothes claws caused by this creature. Clearly, I needed to increase my efforts to let the chipmunk know that it was not welcome here. I ran towards the chipmunk with my supper in one hand because I expected that the chipmunk was trying to pull a bait and switch, trying to not spill my food, shouting, and the chipmunk twitched, backed off a little bit, but overall did not leave the lean-to. I think I saw the chipmunk sneer at me, mock me, and dare me to actually do something about his presence. There was a broom at the lean-to, so I took the handle and hit the side of the lean-to with great force, hoping the noise would scare the creature away. Again, the, the chipmunk twitched a little, moved away from the sound, but it did not run off in fear. I made a fake thrust towards the chipmunk with the broom, and it moved a little, but it call, called my bluff and would not leave. At this point, I think it flipped me the bird, which was impressive and sort of cute for such tiny hands. This chipmunk was now ruining my dinner. I was not going to be able to just eat and watch this creature dig through all my personal belongings. It was then that I realized that I had a choice. I could let this little creature explore and dig and potentially destroy my gear, spread diseases, and continue to rain terror on Blueberry Lean 2, or I would have to cross the line that the chipmunk had drawn and no longer bluff. I would have to do whatever I could to hurt, injure, or kill the little beast, or else it was just going to walk all over me, or at least all over all my gear. I normally like to think of myself as a pacifist, in the sense of St. Francis, the type reaching out, trying to connect with all the creatures, showing God's grace and love, but at a distance. The thought of having to harm this little creature was not appealing to me. Also, I'm squeamish. I don't like to deal with cadavers of any of the animal kingdom. Yet this chipmunk was becoming a pest, a nuisance, a threat to my health. And I and had waved obscene gestures in my direction. I had to take action. In my mind, the chipmunk had broken the covenant that I had with nature. I was willing to give the chipmunk the majority of the forest. I was not digging into holes in the ground or looking to push over trees. I was not going through the chipmunk's stuff. I recognized that the, wo the woods were the chipmunk's domain and worked to respect that any way I could. Yet I just wanted to have that little section, that little bit of space for just the next couple of nights, the lean-to and the surrounding area. There are six million acres of land in the Adirondacks, and I assumed the agreement, the unwritten contract, was that I would stay out of the chipmunk's space, and the chipmunk would stay out of my space. 
But the chipmunk would not stay out of the lean-to, would not stay off my gear, and that agreement was broken. The chipmunk was going to have to die. As I was finishing my meal, I waited. I waited for the chipmunk to get bold and let its guard down. And with a heavy but determined heart, I waited for the opportunity to wield the broom again, but not as a noisemaker, instead as a sword or spear. I could not fake it. I could not pretend to offer feints and jabs in the air just around the chipmunk, but would have to fully commit to the act. Otherwise, the chipmunk would just laugh at me and continue to walk all over me and my stuff. The opportunity emerged, and I left forward with a strike, still with my dinner in my hand. I yelled in a primal way. I thrust the broom handle with anger, and I missed the chipmunk by a lot. Yet this time, the chipmunk ran and left the lean-to. I thrust out my chest and beat it with my fist, expressing the moment the appropriate amount of cursing and trash talk, feeling I had made my point. The chipmunk came back again. I had to make another attempt to hurt or kill the little beast, and again the chipmunk ran. And this became the dance, wildly aimed attempts and escapes again and again. It was a dance that would not work unless I was sincere in my attempts to end the life of this rodent. It would not work unless the chipmunk was sincere in its attempt to eat my food. And in the end, I'm glad to say that my dexterity and precision with a broom handle is less than stellar, and that my year in college with the fencing club was not enough to give me the skills to be dangerous in any way. The chipmunk survived the dance unscathed. Later that day, a family of four with a dog, of whom I'll speak about later, joined me at the lean-to, and the dog took over the dance with a much greater effectiveness and much more lasting results. Even with the dog, I will say that as far as I know, I believe the chipmunk was never physically harmed. He is, however, undergoing double therapy sessions. It's covered by chipmunk insurance. Chipmunks were not the only creatures that plagued me in the wild. There was also a grouse who made a lasting impression on me. Not many of us have the opportunity to see a grouse in the wild. I believe I have seen pheasants in the wilderness, or at least in someone's backyard, but I don't think I've ever seen a grouse before. I'm not a member of the Audubon and cannot identify many birds at all. Up until this journey, I would not have known a grouse it came to, if it came to me and slapped me in the face. Now, I will never c- forget that cursed avian. I was near the end of my long trek on the Northville Placid Trail, and I was ready to be done. I had been seven days in the wilderness. I had pushed my body more than I should have, and I knew that I was close to the end. I finished my lunch with the annoyance of a slightly aggressive chipmunk trying to eat my lunch, and was ready for the final part of my hike back to my car, about ten miles left. Lost in thought, dodging sticks and twigs, which did end up injuring my eye later that same day, I heard a commotion just before me. I heard the sound of wings rapidly beating, responding to my bumbling presence on the trail, making a retreat because my entrance into the area was most likely seen as an intrusion. No doubt I had come across a nest of birds. I assumed pheasants, and by now I was used to this sound, and it did not startle me. But then, something with great force and tremendous anger and focused energy came running at me, hissing and puffing, and committed seeing to seeing my end. This creature was not large, about the size of a chicken, but it had the element of surprise which threw me off, as well as a demonic anger that was focused completely at me. It was puffed up, its mouth was open, and it was hissing and running right towards me. This creature was angry. Shock and fear were my first emotions, and in an attempt to understand what was happening, I immediately started running backwards. 
Although it was the size of, the ch- of a chicken, I knew it wasn't a chicken because I was deep in the wilderness and I was pretty sure chickens were not found in these parts of the wild. I thought maybe it was a pheasant. It seemed the right size. I'd seen them in other parts of the wilderness, so it made sense that I was being attacked by a pheasant. I was running backwards, and the creature was running towards me, forcing me to backtrack part of the trail I've already walked on, and something in the back of my mind snapped. I had all of my gear on my back. I was tired. My car was only 10 miles down the trail. I was not going to let this flightless little demon bird stop me from getting home. The problem was that the bird was beyond reason. The bird was not going to stop and discuss what it was feeling and and what I was feeling and work to reach a compromise. I realized that I was going to have to match the bird's commitment to violence with a commitment of my own. I was going to have to kick the angry little head of the bird with the hope that one kick would be enough. Again, I was not happy with this decision because I am still holding to my dream that I might emulate St. Francis at a distance but realized it was what I was going to have to do if I wanted to get this creature out of my way and get back to my car. All of these thoughts happened in an instant, and in that instant the initial fear had taken over, the flight response that was feeding me turned to anger and rage, and I stopped running backwards, and with all the anger and dedication to do harm, erupted in a yell with an intensity that I usually save for my children. Fuck you, pheasant! Immediately the bird stopped running at me and turned into the woods whimpering and whining. I continued down the trail, cursing the bird for putting me in such a position as I felt that I was going to have to do harm to one of God's little woodland creatures. I was also cursing the bird for making my heart skip a couple of beats. It was not much later after my yelling and cursing at the bird when I caught up with an older couple. They were in their 80s. And they were an amazing pair who seemed to balk at nothing in the wilderness, who seemed to be hiking all of their lives and knew that whatever they would encounter, they would be fine. They would take their time, but they would be fine. I mentioned the bird to the couple and found out that they had also come across the bird's nest. However, they had not received the same reception I encountered, but instead they just startled the birds. I found out from this couple that the demon bird that charged me on the trail wasn't a pheasant, but a grouse. Pictures later confirmed that I had indeed encountered a grouse. I found out that the male grouse would charge if it felt the the nest was being attacked, and they would pretend to be injured or to lure the potential predator or danger away from the nest. I also found out that this older couple had primed the grouse's anger by surprising it once before I got there. Now it was a mess of emotions. I was angry with that older couple for initially scaring the birds. I was angry at the bird because it must not have seen me as a risk initially if it was charging me with such force. And mostly I was angry at myself for possibly offending and hurting the bird's feelings by mistaking it for a pheasant. I called the grouse a pheasant, which may be one of the most offensive things to say to a grouse. Or maybe not. I'm not, I'm sure I brought up many traumatic memories that the grouse experienced in childhood being mocked for not being a pheasant. The older couple told me that the grouse whimpered and sulked into the woods because it was trying to protect the nest, but I think I deeply hurt it with my insensitive remark. Since my return, I have sent the grouse family a gift basket and flowers. Bears. For some reason, bears enamor people. Those who wonder about my experience in the wilderness tend to ask again and again, did you see any bears? What they're really asking is if I encountered a creature who could conceivably kill me because if I didn't, then I really don't have any interesting stories to share. 
I'm not sure what it is with the fascination with the danger and the possibility of death. When someone goes surfing or scuba diving, I don't usually ask if they saw any sharks. When someone goes for a long trip in a car, I don't ask if they spun out of control and almost crash into someone or something else. But if someone did see a shark and almost crash, I, I want to hear that story. We say that the wilderness is about being in nature, about finding the moment of beauty, about being on top of the mountain and gazing over God's great creation. But those stories are boring and elicit yawns. Tell us about the danger. I believe that when people ask if I saw or encountered any bears, they're really asking, did you see anything that could have killed you if it wanted to? I think the question speaks to a basic human wondering about the intensity of the adventure, a desire to connect vicariously to the risk and excitement of being in the wilderness. No one is going to be as impressed with a story of a grouse attacking you because that is not nearly as dangerous, but funny. Now, if it was a bear running on me, at me on the trail and I cussed out that bear, causing it to whimper and sulk away into the wilderness, that would be an exciting story. But instead, I had a demonic chicken-sized bird charge me. At the worst, I may have wounded a leg due to angry pecking, but I'd still be intact, alive and in one piece. It's a funny but not exciting story. Small birds are not exciting. Bears are exciting, are sexy in a weird kind of way, and like disasters, sell newspapers. That is why every time I talk about my experience in the wilderness, people ask if I saw any bears. And as it turns out, the odds were in my favor that I would see a bear. Spending three months in the wilderness where bears are known to wander pretty much guarantees that I will see a bear, and I did twice. Let me say at the outset, these were not great experiences. I did not start this journey with the hopes that I would encounter a bear. I was not looking for an opportunity to tangle with a creature that weighed just as much as me or more and who had sharp claws, sharp teeth, and was very strong. Bears are dangerous and should be avoided. And they never know when to leave a party. If I went the whole summer without meeting a bear, I would have been very happy. But alas, my happiness would have to be found elsewhere. The first time I, I was blessed to interact with a bear was when I was hiking alone descending Sawteeth Mountain along what is known as the scenic route. And it was actually a nice scenic route aside from the bear encounter, worth the extra distance. It was a warm, wet day, and I was not in the best of moods at the top of the mountain. There was no view at all. It was rainy and windy, and not the kind of pastoral picturesque experience that I was searching for. Yet despite the views on the summit, I still, or despite the lack of views on the summit, I still took some time to pray this prayer from St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. It's a great and well-known prayer, and it did give me a sense of calm and put things in some perspective. I let the prayer put me in my place, rebuke my anger and spite and lead me to a place where I could be grateful for the opportunity to hike. I share this prayer not just because it's calming and happy and full of, the, full of wisdom, but because Francis was known as someone who was very connected with the animals and often is seen as a patron saint of the woodland creatures. He preached to the fish and is often seen with a bird on his shoulder and a mouth at his feet. 
He is the peace-loving, kind, gentle saint of the animals. Considering the way that I felt about the chipmunks and in insects, he was not my patron saint for this trip, but still a presence in the imagination of Western civilization. So on this ill-fated day, on the top of Mount Salteeth, I read a prayer by the patron saint of the animals, by the very person who one prays to if feels threatened by an animal. Keep this tidbit in the back of your mind. As I was going down the mountain, the rain started to end, the sun began to pink out, and the scenery was getting nicer and nicer, just as the scenic path seemed to promise. At the bottom of the mountain, the trail goes along Lower Ossable Lake, following it for some distance, offering some good views and some very nice hiking. The sun was coming out, blue sky was peeking through the clouds, and I was just beginning to think things were getting better. It was going to be a pretty good day after all. Let this be a lesson to all who hike in the mountains. Never think that things are going to go well. As I was sauntering along the trail in the corner of my eye, I saw something scurry up a tree. I looked towards the movement, hoping it was a squirrel or a chipmunk, but saw that it was, without question, a bear. It looked like a fairly small bear, not particularly threatening, but it was still a good 30 or 40 yards away, so I was not sure if it was naturally small, or if it was just a child, or if it was just far away. I decided I was not going to go and take measurements of the bear and compare them with the average bear growth chart that I always carry with me. Regardless of the age or size of the bear, I, I just wanted to leave it alone. I, I did not want any trouble. I just wanted to go on my way. And if it was a baby, I needed to know where the mother was so that I would not have any real trouble and never get in between a mother and a cub. So I blew my whistle. Because nothing says scary like a skinny, slightly frightening hiker emitting a high-pitched sound at a great decibel. The little bear ran off a little further, not wanting any trouble either, and I sighed a bit. Perhaps we were on the same page and we were going to be okay. But then the head of a slightly bigger bear emerged, and I realized that this is the mother, and that little bear was indeed a cub. I really did not want any trouble with the mother or cub. I just wanted to go on my way, but she was right on the trail. I blew the whistle again, hoping the mother bear would realize what a great danger I was. Take the hint, move off the trail into the woods. I also hoped she would not be able to smell the fear that was emanating from all pores of my body. I hoped that she would be scared as her cub was and go into the woods, but instead she saw right through my ruse. The mother bear could see easily see that I, skinnery hiker that I am, was not a threat, uh, but perhaps... A treat. Maybe I was the answer to her question about what she was going to do for dinner. She stomped her foot, huffed a bit, and started to slowly walk towards me. I will not tell you the litany of words that came from my mouth at this time. I will leave it to the reader and listener's imagination. It makes what I expressed to the grouse seem tame and restrained. In the midst of the litany, I pleaded with her, asking her to just move off the trail. I told her I did not want any trouble and begged her to just step away for a while so I could get by. She continued to walk toward me, inviting me to stay and join her and her cub for dinner. Before we go any further, let's talk about bears. Uh, let's all remember that in the Adirondacks there are black bears. Unless one has escaped from a misplaced circus act, you will not find brown bears or grizzly bears or Kodiak bears and definitely not polar bears. The difference between the types of, there is a difference between the type of bears. The famous Oscar-winning movie in which a bear almost kills one of our national living treasures, Leonardo DiCaprio, is not a black bear, but a grizzly. Of course, the movie that I'm talking about is Titanic. 
That bear is the kind that you should buy anti-bear spray for, or a gun. And that's not a black bear. It's brown, grizzly. Black bears, so I am told, are smaller, a little more timid, scared of people, do not want to be around people, and if you make enough noise, should run away. This is what I'm told. This is another part of the unwritten contract, the agreement that I assumed I have with nature when I'm in the wilderness. If I see a bear, I will make noise and it will run away and I will not chase after it. I will not take pictures of it. I will not bother it in any way if it just leaves me alone. If I leave out food overnight and a bear comes by and eats the food, then that's my fault and I cannot blame or get angry with a bear. But if I eat away from where I'm sleeping, if I keep my food separate from my camp, if I make an abundance of noise, then the bears should stay away. They stay away and I stay away. This is the deal that I'm basing all my actions upon. So here I am on the shore of Lake Ossible, watching a mother bear walking towards me. I'm making noise, blowing the whistle, cursing loud, and thinking of that certain bear attack movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, Maybe it was the man in the iron mask. And wondering how many days will pass until someone discovers my festering carcass and how long until my wife and children are notified of my grisly death. I'm thinking these things and the bear is walking towards me, blatantly breaking the agreement that we're supposed to have. Now another thing we are told is that we are not supposed to run. You're not supposed to turn tail and try to run away as fast as you can from the bear. First, it is because even as the black bear charges you, you should have some self-respect and stand up for yourself. Second, black bears can run really fast, maybe up to 30 miles an hour. I can run up to 5 miles an hour, maybe 6, and I'm told that black bears love a good chase. The point is, one should not run. And these rules are not helping me. I'm standing on the trail, trying to figure out what to do next, remembering that I'm not supposed to run away, and the mother bear is approaching me. I'm not supposed to run, even though I want to, even though every part of me is saying that the best thing to do is to get the heck out of there as quickly as possible, but I'm not supposed to run. I'm going to have to break some of these some kind of rules because I don't want to stay where I am. So I walk backwards, slowly. I do not break the gaze with the mother bear. I keep pleading with her asking if maybe we could renegotiate the agreement, telling her I just wanted to walk by to get back to my camp. And the mother bear keeps walking towards me, inviting me to stay for dinner. Let the reader sigh with relief or despair, because I did not have to stay for dinner. Eventually, as I made my slow and brave retreat and got further away from the cub, the mother bear stopped walking towards me. I can only assume that I walked far enough away that she no longer worried that I would be a threat, or she thought it would be too much work to drag me all the way back for dinner, and she left me alone. Yet that mother bear was still on the trail, exactly where I wanted to go. There was a mountain on one side of me and a lake on the other, and my campsite and dinner were waiting for me a number of miles away. I decided to do what it was that I wanted the bear to do. I headed off into the woods. I went off the trail and made a wide berth around her and her child with the hope that I would reconnect with the trail further down the way. It was not lost to me that on the top of the mountain, just a few hours ago, I had invoked the prayer of Francis, the woodland saint, not an official title, and wondered if he did or did not intervene in this encounter. If Francis really did care about me or the creature, then wouldn't it have been better to have not encountered the bear at all? 
And what about making me an instrument of peace as I was cussing out the bear? Clearly, Francis is not my patron saint, but instead my ironic saint. My more immediate concern was to not run into the mother and cub again. Even though I was going fairly deep into the woods, what I thought was far away from where the bears were, I did not want to take any chances that I might run into them again. So I made a lot of noise the rest of the way so I would, so I would not walk upon the mother and cub unaware. There's no better way to announce your presence in the woods than with poetry. I began reciting the love song of Alfred J. Prufrock by T.S. Eliot, because that's a long and meandering poem which I hope would take all the time necessary to get well past the bear. I also hope that it would confuse any other bears that might be listening. I mean, what does it mean, after all, that there is a time, there is a time to prepare the face to meet the faces that I meet? I cannot fight a bear, but I can at least baffle them with pretentious poetry. I resolved that I would not recite anything by Robert Frost while hiking in the woods. That's too cliché. It took at least a week of hiking for me to stop jumping at every little thing that moved in the woods. Every scurry of a mouse, every deer running through the forest, every black lump off in a distance with a potential bear to my imagination. The trauma of the experience had an impact on me that took a while to ebb away. The second time I had an encounter with a bear was near the end of the summer. By this time, the bears start to get a little more aggressive exploring campsites and food because they're starting to get serious in their preparations for hibernation. Bears need to eat a lot of food. Hikers tend to carry high-calorie food, and to be honest, it tastes much better than grubs and berries. Bears look for sloppy campers who do not properly store their food overnight. Many think that hanging your food from a tree is a magical way of keeping bears at bay, but you really need to use a canister. Or for those campers who leave scraps of food around their site, or campers who just leave their food in their pack right next to their tent, believing that bears will never try to eat it. The golden ring of campsite scavenging is a camper with food scraps, jelly, and grease caked on their face or lingering in their beard. I, being the good rule follower that I am, follow the Department of Environmental Conservation standards and use a bear canister. This is a hard plastic container that locks in different ways depending on the brand and it is supposed to be impossible for the bear to break into. The hope is that the bears will come across the food locked in the pill-shaped plastic safe, get frustrated, and move on to the next campsite where someone has left shore food around the tent and lean-to. For the most part, I am fastidious about my food storage because I do not want to encounter a bear. I try to be very careful with my food, eating in a place where I'm not going to sleep, storing my food in a completely different place. I have even, from time to time, left notes for the bears with maps to a nearby campsites and the promise of a cornucopia of hiker scraps and tasty delights in hopes of discouraging any exploration of my campsite. On the night in question, I was camping with still waters and baby back and was careful with everything in just the way I've described, except for the map and note for the bear. We were staying at Livingston Point, an isolated lean-to campsite in the flowed land, and were looking forward to a good night's sleep before going off to tackle three or four mountains for the next day. It was a normal and unextraordinary night after a normal and unextraordinary hike in. When I sleep in a lean-to, I leave a couple of things at my feet within reach to get me through the night. This is my just-in-case pile, my water bottle in case I'm thirsty, my first aid kit in case I cut myself in my sleep and my toilet paper, in case I need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. The third item is really the most important. Having settled in for a good Adirondack sleep, 
At 1 a.m., I woke to the sound of something stirring through my toilet paper. It was in a Ziploc bag. And sat up to see the silhouette of a bear right at my feet. Its front two paws were on the lean-to, and it seemed to be investigating around my feet. As soon as I sat up, the bear stood up and then walked off to the side of the lean-to. I was still groggy in a dream state and thought that it was either Stillwaters or Babyback, and maybe that they were skin shifters akin to Bjorn from The Hobbit. If you have to ask, then it's not worth explaining. If this was not the case, that would mean that I'd actually seen a bear right at my feet. It only took a few moments, a quick impromptu roam call, to realize the truth. There was a bear on the other side of the lane too, who either needed first aid or toilet paper, or was looking for food. If, I had only, if it had only asked... I would have gladly offered help in whatever way that I could. The three of us made lots of noise and the bear lumbered away into the woods. I did not sleep well for the rest of the night. The next morning, Stillwaters noticed that his bear canister had a little nick in it and was moved to a slightly different place than where he originally placed it. Babyback's canister and mine were fine and untouched. We did not see any other evidence of the bear, but the experience was etched well into our imagination with a slight flavor of trauma. We expected the bear to return the next night and kept a candle lantern lit all night long, hoping it would discourage any return visit. While the bear did not visit, I had a difficult time sleeping with a light shining all night. For a week and a half, I continued to not sleep well, expecting again and again to encounter a bear in the middle of the night. These are not happy experiences. Some may say that I am lucky to have such close and intimate encounters with bears and to emerge from them unscathed. Some would say that this is a part of the excitement of the Adirondacks and that it was a treat for me to have such experiences. They're good stories. And there's a sense of awe that one finds when encountering such a strong creature in the wilderness. Overall, I would rather not have such experiences. I would rather not have close encounters with these mighty beasts and do just about everything that I can to avoid interaction. Both times, I did everything right. I was appropriately cautious and careful, Without wearing a bear bell, those are a new kind of torture. And I did get by each each experience without any really negative impact. And for that, I'm thankful. I think of those who might not be as cautious and what might happen to them or the bear. This summer, at least one bear was euthanized because it was getting too comfortable with hikers, following them at the trail, starting conversations, and then asking to exchange phone numbers. Bears are creatures who cut their own path, who do not seem to care about others, who would rather not be around people. Yet, if you have something tasty, they will make their way towards you. This isn't good or fair for the bear. This isn't good or safe for the hiker. If you aren't cautious in your hiking, or scared during and after an experience, something is wrong with you. Now, I'm not at my house when I'm in the wilderness. I am in the home of chipmunks, insects, snakes, grouse, pheasants, and the bears. And I do believe there is an unspoken agreement between the alien and the residents, but often that agreement is forgotten. There is a sense of entitlement when hiking that I fall into that says, this is my space and my experience, and how dare the bugs or small rodents get into my way and negatively impact my time communing with the trees, the rodents, and acceptable insects, butterflies, for example, and other parts of the wilderness. There's a sense of entitlement that I tend to hike with that leads me to a place where I start to believe that all the wilderness is about me and my enjoyment and I begin to resent all those creatures that impact my stay. I start to feel and act as if I am a resident and the animals are the aliens. Yet I am not in my home. 
This is not my land, my lean-to, or my mountain. This is the home of the insects, snakes, bears, etc. They were here first, and will be here after I'm gone. I was the one who scared the grouse and its family. I was the one who startled the snakes. I and other hikers are the ones who have been staying at the lean-tos again and again, leaving tasty food to be eaten by chipmunks and bears, and they are going to look for that tasty food because the odds are there will be something. I was the one who stumbled upon a mother bear who was just trying to feed her child and herself and were now worried or thinking about being on a trail. I am the one who just happened to be in the wilderness at the time when the insects were looking for something, anything to nibble on so they might survive. I'm in their house, and I should not expect that they will go out of their way to accommodate me. Yet I still get frustrated. I want the experience to be all about me. The gratitude that I look to have is not only that I can be in the wilderness, but that the animals learn to adapt, for better or for worse, with the constant visitors that are there. The hubris that is void of such gratitude, that holds to the assumption that this is my space, can make the experience of the wilderness lousy at best and dangerous at worst. The animals changed me, not in a mystical kind of way, but the character that I try to embody. If I, am, if I am approaching my wilderness experience with a sense of gratitude, with an awareness that I am just a visitor in this space, then I would hope that I would carry a sense of compassion, patience, and peace toward all the creatures. Yet the animals pushed me and changed me, even if only for a moment. The chipmunk and the grouse pushed me to a place where I did not want to go to bring out a murderous dark side that I did not know I had. I believed that each animal would take advantage of me, eat my food or my flesh, if I went beyond the threat and embodied the intent and desire to wound and harm and perhaps kill. This is not a place where I am comfortable. And after both encounters, I was angry. I was angry with myself just as much as it was with the creatures. I did not like who I needed to become. The bear, the insects, the snakes, to a much lesser degree, I just wanted to avoid. I looked forward to enjoying the wilderness, but did not want to experience the entire wilderness. I did not want to experience the rain or the insects, but only those parts that are soothing and calm and wonderful. But in experiencing the wilderness, all of the wilderness, something was asked of me, and I did not go into the wilderness expecting to give something. Yes, I knew that I was going to hurt and sweat. I knew that, it would, that much would be demanded of me physically. But in encountering the animals, I had to give something else. I had to give a sense of control, a sense of peace, a sense of safety, and a sense of freedom. I had to let each situation, each encounter, shape me to one degree or another and gave something of myself in the process. It is accepting that there will be insects, and they will attack and bother is accepting that there will be snakes and I will need to be aware of their presence. On the bigger picture, there is something that is demanded of each person when they enter the wilderness. We have gear and shelters and insect repellent and bear bells to help us avoid what it is that we need to give. It is our way of shaping the environment so that the wilderness does not cost as much. But something is still expected and required of one in the wilderness. The creatures, the animals, the insects demanded of me a commitment to be present a commitment to go further emotionally than I am comfortable, and a commitment to stay in the wilderness. And in the moment, I gave what was asked regardless if I wanted to. It was and is not an easy thing to do. 
from Albert Schweitzer, right on the top of Mount Marshall. Hear our humble prayer, our God, O God, for our friends, the animals, especially the animals who are suffering. For any that are hunted or lost or deserted or frightened or hungry, for all that must be put to death, we entreat for them all thy mercy and pity. And for those who deal with them, we ask a heart of compassion, gentle hands, and kindly words. Make, of us our, make us ourselves to be true friends to the animals so that to share the blessing of the merciful. Albert Schweitzer. Trip's summary. Frustration is a part of life, especially if one is going into the wilderness. Frustration is going to be an integral part of the experience. The path is going to be muddy, difficult, and rugged. There are going to be insects and other animals. There is going to be bad weather and difficult crossings. Frustration is part of the journey and the experience and cannot be avoided. I did not plan on getting frustrated, but I was not surprised when I found myself getting tense. In retrospect, I realized that with each frustration, I was faced with a choice. Is this going to be the thing that defines the totality of the moment that I am in? Or at a greater level, the question that I was given was, is this going to be the thing that defines the totality of my trip? What amount of power is this frustration going to have over me and over the way that I experience the wilderness? Is being cold or having sore feet or being eaten alive by insects going to be the thing that shapes how I am going to experience the mountains and the streams? Uh, To a degree, yes. There is a point where I need to be honest and say that the bugs and the weather and all other things are going to shape my experience. They are going to add to the stories and I, that I will tell from years from now. Hiking in the rain is substantially different from hiking in great weather, and the experience is going to be different. I am not good enough with my Zen meditation and transcendental practices that I can engage in a body-mind separation and not be affected by my environment. I cannot live in denial and divorce the negative moments from my experiences, and I'm glad that I cannot. These experiences are, imp- are an important part of shaping the ways that I am in and part of the wilderness. I have to choose to speak about them, to reflect on them, and to let the frustration shape the journey. Yet to a degree, I can choose, if I want, all the frustrations to have a negative impact on me when I reflect on what I gained from the mountains. In each moment, this was a choice that I was faced with again and again. If I was going to let the overall experience be negative or positive because of the frustration, it was a question of how much power the frustrations were going to have over me. I'll be honest, there were times when I was overwhelmed and wanted to quit. There were times when I felt like the bugs and the rain were so bad that it was not worth the effort and the anger and the frustration and I wanted to leave the wilderness. Any power I had to shape the experience in a positive and productive way and to say that everything is great was lost in the moment of being swarmed by insects. The frustration in all of its forms brought me to a place where I wanted to be done. Yet I never did quit. I may have wanted to, but I didn't. I I was not in denial, but instead, in a moment of brutal honesty, also said to myself, yeah, it sucks, and now you need to get up and keep moving. And I would. And I would find moments that were good and worth the effort. There were other times when I held on to some semblance of power in the moment. There were times when I was able to look past the rain, suffer through the insects, and say it was still going to be good. 
These were moments when I had to try to not take it personally. There were times when I had the strength to not be resentful, to not be angry, but to find a place where I was resolved to continue. I don't know where the strength came from. I don't know how I was able to find that place where I could continue, but I did not quit and kept moving. Power is a tricky thing. The insects were constant regardless if I was annoyed or not. The rain fell, no matter my approach or attitude. I never had any power over the creatures, even the chipmunks, and certainly not over the weather or the streams. Power is not something that any of these frustrations conspired to take away from me. I gave my power away. I did not control anything. I did not change anything, but I still either held on to or gave away power. The only thing I really could control is me. The frustration is more about me. From Charles Spurgeon, read on the top of Upper Wolf Jaw Mountain. Come and help us, Lord Jesus. A vision of your face will brighten us. But to feel your spirit touching us will make us vigorous. Oh, for the leaping and walking of a man born lame. May we today dance with holy joy like David before the ark of God. May a holy exhilaration take possession of every part of us. May we be glad in the Lord. May our mouth be filled with laughter and our tongue with singing, for the Lord hath done good things for us, whereof we are glad. Charles Spurgeon. Well, that was the frustrations trip. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I know it was a little bit longer, but there were a lot of frustrations. Some of my, I think, better stories, especially the grouse, bear, all that stuff. Um, Feel free to please let me know how you feel about these wilderness journeys. I um, I still have more to share, and I'll keep doing that. The next one's about people. Uh, But you can send me a note about this episode or any other episodes to 12enough at gmail.com, and 12 is written out. You can go to the Facebook page and just go to Facebook and hear about things also going on with the 12 Enough universe. That's Facebook slash 12 Enough. You can follow me on Twitter at Pastor Malone. I don't do much, but, you know, follow. It's fun. Or not. Uh, And please, uh, you can go to the website, 12enough.com. 12 is written out, where you can find out about uh, other shows and read my blog and other things happening. And please go to iTunes and rate and like the show and do all that stuff. That really does make a big difference. Someone not long ago put a a comment on there, uh, and I really appreciate it. So the more I get, the better. And as always, thank you very much for listening. 12 Enough is a podcast about Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your host was Jonathan Malone, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, and one grouse, one angry Grouse. The thoughts, ideas, opinions, ruminations, moments of brilliance, moments otherwise said or reflected on this podcast do not reflect their churches, uh, denomination, family, Adirondacks, Rhode Island, or anything else by that, that nature. This is their show. This is their podcast.